Hello again, and welcome back to Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon, and I'm delighted to have you here as we talk everything football and betting related in preparation for a busy week four in the CFL. If you're new to the podcast, great to have you with us. If you're a returning listener, thanks for being along for the ride so far. Either way, if you want to get in touch with me regarding anything at all related to the show, the CFL, or betting in general, feel free to drop me a line in the comments section at firstlinepicks.com or message me on Twitter at kdrive88, that's K-D-R-I-V-E-8-8. Whether it's positive or negative feedback, I'd love to hear from you. We've got four games on deck to break down this week, but we'll start with a recap of last week as usual with the Thursday nighter between Edmonton and Winnipeg. The final score was not a surprise, but how we got there wasn't exactly conventional. Edmonton did a reasonable enough job on offense picking up first downs, but despite a few bends, Winnipeg's defense never broke and kept Trevor Harris and the boys out of the end zone entirely en route to a 28-21 victory. Edmonton kicked a ridiculous seven field goals in the game and had two chances at forcing overtime, but wasn't able to get it done in the end, teasing their backers in the fourth quarter but ultimately failing to cover the number, which closed at five and a half. The biggest point of contention in this one was Jason Moss's decision to kick a field goal on first down with just over two minutes left in the second half, trailing by ten points. Moss has taken a lot of heat from both myself and many others in recent seasons for his late-game decision-making, and he's taking plenty of criticism for his approach here as well. Personally, I would have at least taken one shot at the end zone before sending out Sean White, but I actually don't mind the strategy in principle. Getting the field goal out of the way and leaving yourself enough time to kick the ball deep and still get it back with enough time to mount a touchdown drive is a reasonable strategy on the surface. Of course, as the Stampeders would show us on Saturday night, playing for the win as opposed to the tie certainly has its merits. From a statistical breakdown perspective, this was a classic case of well-timed explosive plays bailing out one offense, while the other offense chewed up yardage but not in the key areas of the field and failed to capitalize on turnovers. Winnipeg only had five plays the entire game go for more than 10 yards, excluding the effects of penalties, but when three of those are essentially 40-plus yard touchdown strikes, and you combine it with a P.I. call near the goal line, it can overcome what was otherwise a very solid performance from the Edmonton defense. Andrew Harris never got anything going along the ground, with Nick Dembski actually having Winnipeg's lone big run. And putting two fumbles on the ground on the Winnipeg side of the field was obviously huge, but ultimately the Eskimos' defense couldn't fully overcome self-inflicted wounds. Two needless roughing calls kept Winnipeg's first touchdown drive alive, and those are the types of mental mistakes that have plagued this team under Jason Moss. The Eskimos' penalty tally through three weeks sits at 39 penalties for 422 yards, and even if we could accept that an aggressive defensive set might lead to an extra call or two as a means to an end, this amount of penalties is still ridiculously high, and several have been of the rather undisciplined variety. This has been a problem that Coach Moss has acknowledged repeatedly in his pressers, but as of this moment, the message to cut down on the unnecessary flags hasn't gotten through. I think if you're Mike O'Shea on the opposite sideline... You have to look at how other teams have done coming out of an early bye week, and you're probably perfectly content hanging on for an ugly win. And even though the offense wasn't quite rolling the way you'd like it to, the defense did a really good job of keeping their head above water, even as the time of possession advantage started to factor in. They didn't force a ton of second and longs, but they were effective against the pass in second and medium situations, and Trevor Harris wasn't able to sustain drives to the same degree as he did in the previous two weeks. 
There were a few drops from Edmonton receivers, and that certainly helped. But I think the coaching staff is probably happy with how things have looked so far, and this defense has the makings of being one of the league's top units going forward. Not quite so close a game in Hamilton on Friday night, unfortunately for us, as Montreal fails to cover plus 14. It's back-to-back blowout wins for Hamilton, who's now 3-0 for the first time in 15 years, and a pretty big letdown for the Alouettes, who failed to impress in a single area of the game besides their goal line defense. If it's possible for a 41-10 scoreline to flatter the loser, consider Hamilton turning the ball over twice inside the Montreal 5-yard line. Montreal was technically within two scores at the beginning of the fourth quarter and gave their fans a glimmer of hope with a goal line stuff near the end of the first half. But ultimately, that goal line stand and a really poor interception from Jeremiah Masoli that took certain points off the board only kept it respectable for so long. Montreal has issues in more than one department, but I can't quite get over how bad this offensive line is looking. Hamilton was getting strong pressure with four-man rushes in the early going, and when they got bored of that, they proceeded to get consistent pressure with three-man rushes. He ended up getting pulled for Matthew Schiltz by the end, but Vernon Adams didn't have much of a chance in this one, with defenders in his face immediately on far too many snaps. And obviously with eight guys in coverage, you're not going to have many open options downfield. I thought Montreal made a decent effort to try and get the run going, but these guys just couldn't open any holes, and Hamilton's defensive front had another very solid showing. I said coming in that Montreal had to avoid second and longs by getting positive yardage from William Standback, and they failed in this regard, grading unsuccessful on six of their first seven rushing attempts on first down. They actually hung in there somewhat on second down, executing a handful of chunk plays, but obviously this isn't an offense with the personnel to really challenge a secondary, and when Hamilton was able to start dropping extra guys into coverage, those plays disappeared. I'm not entirely sure where Montreal goes from here, but we'll have a closer look momentarily as these two teams will see each other again on Thursday night in Montreal. If it wasn't the biggest game on the schedule, it was definitely the most dramatic, and the game I'm speaking of here is the Calgary Stampeders pulling out an improbable fourth quarter victory to deny the beleaguered BC Lions their first win of the year. Calgary showed once again that no matter how many key players you subtract from the roster, they will continue to be that horror movie villain that you can never truly assume is dead. Saturday night's game was another tribute to a coaching staff that never overlooks even the smallest details. Once again, going for two points after any touchdown where a single doesn't specifically help you proves to be a winning strategy. Calgary went for two after their first three touchdowns and converted all three. Devon Claybrooks did this as well on his opening touchdown of the game, but for whatever reason elected not to on any subsequent scores. The end result was Sergio Castillo only going two for three on extra point attempts. So each team scored four majors, but Calgary manufactured an extra three points out of theirs. Then you look back to a Calgary kickoff late in the first half. A great boot with the wind for Rene Paredes, but still a ball that could have been caught right at the goal line and returned, probably to around the 20-yard line, assuming the gunner on coverage doesn't make a shoestring tackle. Regardless of what you'll usually hear out of the commentators, I'm not a fan of conceding single points in most situations. These points come into play, and you've got to carefully weigh the field position gained against the cost of a single, and 15 yards of field position isn't worth giving away a point in my eyes. You can point out that BC got a kickoff single themselves, but this came after a penalty on the convert and was pretty much unavoidable with the kickoff moved up 15 yards. Something as small as giving up a point on a kickoff can have big implications down the road. The difference between trailing by 3 points or 4 points late in a football game is enormous, 
and lo and behold, that's the exact situation BC found themselves in. These tiny little things that the Stampeders consistently come out on the right side of are one of the reasons they often find themselves in position to steal wins in games where their execution may not have warranted it. Then you get into stuff like the perfectly placed onside kick. These are historically very low percentage plays, but if any special teams unit is going to make it look easy, there's no question who it's going to be, and sure enough they come up with the huge recovery. And of course those last minute heroics come on the arm of Nick Arbuckle, subbed in for an injured Bo Levi Mitchell. Credit to him and credit again to the coaches who had him fully prepared. The Lions defense could have done better and certainly needed to do better, these weren't busted coverages, these were proper reads and pinpoint passes being thrown by a guy who just spent 57 minutes on the bench. As far as the off-field action is concerned, I'd look to that Lions plus 10.5 as the best play on the board, and it dis didn't disappoint in that regard, never being in any sort of danger barring a last-second defensive score. Missing out on that lucrative money line payout will leave a bit of a sour taste for anyone who tailed that pick as well, as it looked pretty much locked in for the majority of the ball game. But if you've been following this league for any length of time, you've probably grown begrudgingly accustomed to these type of results, and just hope you can come out on the right side of the fourth quarter meltdowns as often as not. With regards to the total, which was hanging out around 52 or 53 points, this one was a sweat until late with another example of how a one-point move, even on a total, can come into play. It's easy to brush this aside after the total ends up reaching 68 points, but it sat right on that crucial 53 number inside the final two minutes. The last game of the week featured the Toronto Argonauts and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, each battling for their first win of the season on Canada Day, and this proved to be a rather one-sided battle. I was optimistic that this would actually be an entertaining football game, but alas the Argonauts again fell behind by way too many points too early to make this interesting. Throw in a two hour lightning delay, and it was a bit of a dud to celebrate our nation's 152nd birthday, but one which surely suits the rider faithful just fine. Cody Fajardo picked up right where he left off, burning the Argos secondary early and often, much like he did against Ottawa. This was a defensive backfield that was under the gun to show up this year with some healthy bodies back in action, and they just haven't answered the bell here. They're not alone in that, as this linebacking core has now gone two straight games of missing tackles consistently as well. If I'm Jim Pop, I'm working the phones this week to try and bring in some new bodies, but this isn't exactly the ideal time to be doing that, with NFL cuts still several weeks away at the earliest. Scheming hasn't looked all that bad to me. Guys have generally been in position to make plays and just aren't doing so. So on one hand, you at least seem to have some direction here and a foundation in place, but guys aren't suddenly going to learn how to tackle, and the talent level doesn't seem to be adequate right now. As I said last week, I expected Fajardo to have the green light to attack this flimsy-looking secondary, though a 400-yard game through the air definitely exceeded what I thought they'd be able to produce. They did a great job of mixing up run and pass, but I can't help but think sustaining the run to keep the defense honest may not have even been necessary. Saskatchewan graded successful on 15 out of 20 first down passing attempts, and the majority of those were chunk plays that gave them first downs. And of course he had the 98 yarder that broke the game open in the second quarter. For as bad as they looked last week against Hamilton, I thought Toronto's defensive front did a much better job containing the run this week. The Riders only graded successful on 3 of their 10 rushing attempts, not including the quarterback sneaks, while the game was still somewhat within reach. 
So a pretty nice effort from those guys along the defensive line in that regard. But the rest of that unit is struggling badly right now, and I'm not confident that they're going to be turning it around with the current personnel. If there is criticism to be had of this Argo coaching staff, I think it's how conservative Corey Chamberlain was with his strategic decisions on third down when playing from behind. You may have noticed him and James Wilder exchanging words on the sideline after he sent the punt team out on third and inches in the third quarter, and I'm going to side with the running back on that one. I understand that a turnover on downs inside your own 30 probably ends the game at that point, but when you're down 19 points, you just don't have any possessions left to waste. A third in the length of the football is nearly automatic in this league, and deciding to punt the ball away is tough to justify under those circumstances. I didn't like the call to punt on the Saskatchewan 50 in the fourth quarter either. The game was almost certainly lost at that point, but it feels like a give-up, and I don't think there was the right message to send. Lots of concerns going forward with this Argos squad, perhaps most of all at the quarterback position, but more on that a little later. We've got another four-game slate to go over this week, and we'll start as we always do with Thursday Night Football, which will be a rematch between the Tiger Cats and the Alouettes. Despite their convincing win last Friday, Hamilton has opened as 12.5-point favorites, down ever so slightly from the 13 points they closed at in the first leg of the back-to-back. The total of 56.5 is right in line with last week's close. First instinct here has to be jumping on board with the Cats, who just cruised to a 31-point victory, but obviously it's not quite that simple. My biggest worry about the Alouettes right now, as I mentioned, is the condition of their offensive line, and this is a problem that is very difficult to fix in one week. It was hoped that veteran Luke Broder-Jordan would help shore things up when healthy, but that will not be the case as he has decided to retire following this week's game. Needless to say, a bit of a weird situation developing, as it appears he intends to play in this game after missing the first two injured, but how many reps he's actually going to see is uncertain. Either way, a guy with one foot out the door probably isn't moving the needle in a one-game farewell tour. Montreal is probably going to need to bring in an extra blocker if they're going to keep Adams upright, but even if it helps in one regard, it's going to limit what plays are available to an offense that again appears devoid of any big playmakers. A 38% success rate on first down has hamstrung this offense so far, and I don't see a lot of adjustments that can be made to greatly improve this. Montreal has made the effort along the ground, and it's being sniffed out and stuffed every time, and it's going to be up to Kahari Jones to come up with some wrinkles to provide a spark here. If there were any bright spots in last week's performance, Montreal did manage to take advantage of Jeremiah Masoli being a little careless with the football again, picking him off three times. But all told, it was another performance where an opponent pretty much moved the ball at will against this defense and went past 40 points despite turnovers that essentially took two majors off the board. Whether it's pass or run, the Alouettes had no answer to either, and for the second game in a row, their opponent came in at nearly a 70% success rate in all situations. Adding injury to the insult, it looks like Marcus Cromartie is probably going to miss his second consecutive game, and Taylor Loeffler remains on the six-game injured list, so no immediate help is on the horizon. The way Hamilton has imposed their will along the ground and through the air, it's tough to envision a scenario where they get shut down by this defense. The turnovers remain a concern, but this offense has already run a whopping 47 plays that have picked up 10 or more yards, and was only forced to punt a single time last week. From the defensive perspective, the only issue this defense had at all was in coverage in the early going, and they did give up a few chunks to let Montreal sustain drives. But at the end of the day, most teams are going to be okay conceding easy yards between the 35s, as long as they can tighten things up at the end of the drive and eliminate the big play, and that's pretty much what the story was. 
Hamilton lost the time of possession battle in this one by 12 minutes, which is enormous, but Montreal was never any threat to stretch the field, and a lot of the yardage they did pick up came in amounts too small to really bother the Tiger Cats. By the third quarter, when Hamilton realized that they could get pressure with three-man rushes, it was game over for Montreal, and they really failed to generate anything after a touchdown strike to Jake Wieneke late in the third that did bring the score to 26-10, though it never really felt all that close. As if I haven't beat up enough on the Owls here already, it's worth pointing out that special teams were a real mismatch in this game as well, and the lack of depth on the roster Cavus Reed has assembled was shining through on kick returns. Hamilton's Frankie Williams killed them with both a kickoff and a punt return that went for 50-plus yards. Boris Beattie has a huge leg on place kicks, but his punt placement was poor, and the Owls have brought in former rider kicker Tyler Kerpina this week, so stay tuned for a possible personnel change in the kicking game. Regardless of who's kicking, though, it won't matter if the other 11 guys can't make a tackle in space. My only real worries about Hamilton's ability to cover the number for the second week in a row come down to intangibles. The first of those is a similar concern I had coming into last week's game, and that was potential complacency issues after such an easy win over Toronto. I thought there were definitely some signs that Hamilton wasn't totally engaged in the first half last Friday, but even with what I'd rate as a B effort, they won the game going away. Do we see that level of effort again coming off two straight blowouts now? Maybe. Does it even matter? Well, it didn't last time. The second intangible, if you want to call it that, is the spot the Alouette organization finds themselves in. This will be their home opener, and the team is for sale, as I'm sure you've heard by now, and I'd imagine the commissioner will be in attendance with prospective buyers. Getting killed again on the scoreboard wouldn't be a great look. There's not a lot anyone can do about that, beyond Cavus Reed figuring out how to field a better roster, but let's just say it wouldn't surprise me if the borderline calls tend to fall Montreal's way. Again, is that going to be enough to keep this within two touchdowns? Not if Montreal doesn't improve themselves, but it's not something I'd completely discount either. This number is maybe a touch short of where I expected it to be, and we'll see how the market responds. I think you probably see money coming in on Hamilton, and this maybe closes at 13.5 or 14. So possibly a little bit of value on the Cats right now, but this one just doesn't excite me a whole lot. I was fairly bullish on the under 59 total from last week, figuring Hamilton would need 40 on their own to get it over, and even with them hitting that plateau it stayed under, but those two goal line turnovers obviously played a role in that. So I think the 56.5 is probably the right number here. Montreal's offense looks bad enough to scare off a play on the over, but the unusual circumstance of one team being a serious threat to crack 40 makes an under a fairly testy play as well. I'd keep an eye on that prop market as that's probably your most likely chance of finding a high value bet in this game. We'll transition from that game into a battle of the undefeateds on Friday night with the 2-0 Blue Bombers traveling to Ottawa to play the Red Blacks, who are also 2-0 and coming off a week 3 bye. Ottawa has opened as minus 4.5 favorites and the total comes in at 54.5. First off, I'm a little surprised to see Ottawa favored by more than a field goal here. The books have been pretty high on them so far, when both of their first two games saw the majority of action come in on their opponents, so I thought maybe we'd see a bit of a different strategy from the books, but that doesn't appear to be the case, and rather quickly this has moved to minus four in most places, and we're already seeing some minus three and a half now. So how low is this going to get? Wouldn't surprise me to see it move down into the minus one or two range before you start seeing some pushback. The market has been bullish on the Blue Bombers so far this season, and the market has been right in their assessment both times. 
Whether they'll be right a third time remains to be seen, but I don't think it takes a whole lot of detective work to guess where most of the money is landing right now. In terms of what'll be happening on the field of play, I'll be watching closely to see how sharp Ottawa looks, especially in the early going. I talked a little bit about the timing of early bye weeks last show, and we just got to see three teams in action this week coming off week two byes. Winnipeg was one such team, and their offense looked fairly sluggish outside of the two home run plays that they hit on. Calgary was a pretty similar story, sitting on one punt single worth of offense through 27 minutes on Saturday, and even Montreal, whether the bye week is to blame or not in this case, only scored a field goal in the first half against Hamilton after a 17-point fourth quarter the previous game. Toronto was the only team coming off a first week bye, and obviously they looked brutal moving the ball in their first action, though that didn't improve much in week two. It's not a huge sample to draw from, but it's at least a hint that missing out on a week of game action early in the season when you're trying to develop rhythm and chemistry isn't ideal for these offenses. Dominic Davis will be coming off that huge performance against Saskatchewan where he looked perfectly in tune with his receivers, especially Dominic Rhymes, and I have to wonder if it might take them a few possessions to get that timing back and get rolling again. Davis hasn't been shy about pushing the ball downfield early if he thinks he has a shot, but that did burn him in the first week of the season with those early picks by Trey Roberson before he settled in as the game went on. Winnipeg's secondary had a pretty effective outing against Edmonton, holding the Eskimos to a passing success rate of under 50% overall, and they didn't get burned by any huge gainers either. I wouldn't think we see a whole lot of balls thrown to the boundary side where Marcus Sales will likely be hanging out, but Davis went after Nick Marshall and won the battle last time out, so he's got plenty of good reasons to be confident no matter where he's throwing to. It's just a matter of straddling the line between being aggressive and being reckless. As far as Winnipeg's defensive set goes, I think Richie Hall probably sticks with what has worked pretty well so far. He hasn't been too aggressive in terms of blitzing, tending to drop an extra guy into coverage against both BC and Edmonton. This led to a little bit of getting nickeled and dimed against the Eskimos, especially as the game wore on, but overall I think Hall and O'Shea are both pretty happy with how this unit has performed against two good quarterbacks. Managing to come out of the game against Edmonton unscathed on the injury front, at least as far as anyone can tell, was a nice bonus, so they should be fielding a very similar roster. In the run game, I don't foresee them having a lot of problems with Moses Madu. He's more of a north-south type runner, not overly dynamic, and Adam Big Hill isn't missing too many tackles in the middle of that field. This defense did a really good job against C.J. Gable for the most part, especially earlier in the game when the Eskimos were trying and ultimately failing to really get the ground attack rolling. But one thing that has to be said about this Ottawa team is they're willing to fail at something and try it again, and Winston October seems to be showing great instincts for thinking more than one play ahead. I've found his play calling has been extremely unpredictable through two games, which is obviously a compliment in this case. I think whether or not he's having success with it from an individual perspective, Madu will figure into this offense, and if Ottawa has to punt a couple of times in order to size up the defense and hope they tip their hand a little, they appear fine with doing so. Ottawa likes to run a lot of plays as well, and they're probably going to use some no-huddle offenses at points in this game. With Edmonton running so many plays last week, it may have helped condition this defense for some of what they might be seeing. I was impressed with the stamina they were able to maintain as the time of possession grew lopsided, and while they were helped a little by some drop balls late, they never stopped making tackles. Offensively, the Bombers know they need to pick up more first downs this week and cut down on the two and outs. Andrew Harris had one of his more forgettable games with the two fumbles and only 34 yards on the ground, and as nice a surprise as the quick-strike touchdowns were, this offense knows their effectiveness still lies in their ability to grind down defenses. 
Lucky Whitehead has made his presence felt in just two games, and this is the type of weapon that's going to cause headaches for defensive coordinators going forward. Darvin Adams was probably their top receiving threat last year, and he's a solid option, but opposing defenses aren't afraid of a one-on-one -on -one matchup with Darvin Adams. Whitehead's speed is problematic, and we saw this on full display twice against a defense that has otherwise been quite stingy. If Winnipeg can get into a situation where teams are having to dedicate key personnel to Whitehead and Chris Matthews, who made his season debut last week, and guys like Adams are suddenly getting favorable matchups, this offense is going to be even more dangerous than it already was. I thought one of the key matchups last week was going to be Winnipeg's offensive line against the Edmonton pass rush, and I think you'd probably say they fought them to a relative draw. Two sacks given up with one holding penalty isn't a bad stat line against a defense that has been blitzing as often as Edmonton has. This week their bigger concern is probably going to be opening up holes for Harris. Ottawa's defensive line shut down the run pretty effectively for their first six quarters of the season but Marcus Thigpen started finding holes in the second half last time out, so we'll see what kind of answer that defense has for Harris. So, spoiler alert, I really like getting the 4.5 points for a team that some are calling the best in the CFL right now. I've seen enough out of Ottawa to admit they're probably well on their way to surpassing the 7 wins I had them projected at, but I haven't yet seen enough to trust them to cover more than a field goal against what I'll declare is the best team they've faced so far. Coming off that bye week, I think this offense is going to have some hiccups, and I don't mind Winnipeg's chances to potentially win this game outright in this particular spot. I'm not seeing a lot of wiggle room on this total, 54.5 is exactly where I had it pegged, but I'd maybe keep an eye on the first half over under. Bomber's offense usually takes a little bit of time to get locked in, and as I just stated, I could see Ottawa being a little slow out of the gate here if they follow the same pattern as the other teams coming off two-week breaks. That first half total comes in at 26.5 that it projects to based on the game total. I'd give the under some consideration. Doubleheader Saturday starts off with two opponents desperate for wins, with the BC Lions listed as minus 6.5 favorites for their visit to Toronto. Total for this one is a robust 57.5 points. If you're BC, you have to be coming into this one with a renewed sense of confidence, even in the wake of a gut punch loss in the final minutes of a game that seemed all but over. For the first time in this young season, Mike Riley appeared to find good rhythm with his receivers, and the use of John White as a pass catcher out of the backfield was a desperately needed spark that the Stampeders never really had an answer for. The Lions were money on first down, using a blend of run, pitch, and pass to record a whopping 11 chunk plays of 10 or more yards. All told, the Lions hummed along pretty good at 58% success rate in all situations. A number doesn't include quarterback sneak plays, which I only bring up because I can't ever remember so many second and short situations in one game. Mike Riley is very tough to stop on a one-yard sneak, and BC converted all but one on the night. But of course, as fate would have it, that one miss occurred on the Stampeders' goal line, and it took a major off the board that in all likelihood ended up being the difference between a win and a loss. BC generally abandoned the deep balls that they'd tried to live and die with in their opening two games, instead hitting on quick patterns near the sticks and using John White in an Andrew Harris-like dual-threat role. Given the ease with which Riley passed against the Stampeders for most of the night, he has to be licking his chops in anticipation of facing this Argos defense that is coming off a 400-yard shredding at the hands of Cody Fajardo. And given the poor tackling demonstrated by this Argo linebacking core, I would have plenty of confidence using White mainly on short passes and getting him in isolation against these outside linebackers, who've frankly done a very poor job so far. 
If I'm Corey Chamberlain drawing up a scheme this week to disrupt this offense, I'm bringing the house and gambling that a hurried Riley will be an inaccurate Riley. You're obviously leaving some struggling personnel on an island trying to cover a Brian Burnham or Jerron Carter, but I think it's a risk you need to take. Mixing in the dump passes and runs made a world of difference in helping out the Lions' offensive line after the seven-sack game in Week 2, but if you can manage to snuff out a couple of those early on, it's possible BC gets frustrated again and falls back into old habits, at which point the blitz is going to gain effectiveness. I don't know if that's likely to happen, but Toronto needs to get creative on defense because this unit has been an abject failure through two games. The biggest question going forward for the Boatmen might be at the quarterback position. I've never been particularly high on James Franklin, and this is two consecutive games now where he's made poor decisions with the football and been pulled by the end. Technically, he got pulled after appearing to possibly injure his knee, and if he's unavailable next week, it makes the decision moot, but I think it's time for Corey Chamberlain to make a change regardless. There were some positive signs for Toronto as a whole, and they were significantly more efficient with the ball than in the opener, even if it wasn't reflected on the scoreboard. Ryan Bowman being back at the right guard position along the line was a big help, and they were able to get James Wilder on track out of the backfield earlier on, until the score got away from them again and they had to shelve it. But any good things Toronto was able to accomplish on offense was largely undone by bad decision making inside the pocket. They were in good position to walk out of the first quarter in Regina trailing 6-3, but Franklin forced the ball that he didn't need to, which will generally cost you against that secondary, and one play later it's 13-0 and the Argos never truly recovered. Then there were a lot of sacks as well that I wouldn't entirely blame on the offensive line. A quarterback in his fifth season of pro football needs to sense when the pocket is collapsing and get the ball out of there, and there were just too many times Franklin held on too long trying to make a positive play and it turned into a significantly negative one. And last of all, just plain inaccuracy on several balls thrown over the heads of receivers who had a step on their man. Connecting on a couple of those could have changed the direction of this game. I'm not sure if McLeod Bethel-Thompson is the answer for Toronto, but by now it's definitely looking like James Franklin probably isn't. As of this moment, no update has been provided on Franklin's status health-wise. Assuming he's good to go on Saturday, I get the impression that Chamberlain is likely to give him another chance. He was perfectly calm in his post-game press conference, and to be fair, 0-2 in the CFL isn't exactly something that should set off alarm bells, but personally I'd be making the move at this point, or very strongly considering it. Whoever starts under center for the Argos, they'll be up against a defense that played 57 minutes of very solid football before getting Nick Arbuckled on the home stretch. As frustrating as that is, it shouldn't completely overshadow the job they did in limiting Calgary, at least for the portion of the game played by Bo Levi Mitchell. I think this BC front seven is actually flying a little under the radar right now, and they did a really good job of stuffing the run. Linebacker was one of my areas of potential concern for this unit coming into the season, but I think they've probably exceeded expectations. Calgary got buried on first down for the second straight game, with this Lions unit forcing a lot more second and long situations than in their previous two. The one criticism, beyond the obvious collapse in the dying moments of the game, was their inability to get a single stop on one of the three two-point convert attempts Calgary executed, and in this case they certainly knew that was coming. As I said last week though, picking up three yards on a 65-yard wide field when you have all week to rehearse exactly what you want to run in those situations isn't a big ask for an offense, and I'm not sure why there's still hesitation to go for two from some coaches, but the tide does appear to be shifting finally. To turn the focus back to the game at hand, Toronto needs to sustain enough drives to force BC into some mistakes. I'd like to see some more of Darrell Walker than we have to date. 
Calgary kept in touch throughout the game with a series of well-timed deep balls that connected against this secondary, which eventually broke down late in the game when one stop was all that was needed. The Argos have the horses to win one-on-one -on -one battles downfield, but they need some catchable balls to start coming their way. I'm pretty much in agreement with where the numbers come in on in this one, and I think 6.5 was probably the right number to draw in some action on a game that might otherwise get a little lost in the shuffle. It's moved on to 7 in fairly short order, which is no surprise after the two stinkers the Argos have served up. I think you probably see BC taking the bulk of the action up to 7.5, but I'd be surprised if there wasn't some pushback if it makes it out to 8 or beyond. I think BC travelling across the country is probably a factor the market will be considering, although I think that's largely offset by the short week Toronto is facing. A Monday night game two time zones over that ended up taking five hours to play due to the storm delay hasn't done Toronto any favours here, having to turn around and be ready on Saturday, although at least for their sake it's a 7 o'clock local start instead of an afternoon tilt. All things considered situationally, I think BC is as well placed to play their third consecutive road game as any team can be. Total-wise, that's a pretty big number on the board considering how bad this Toronto offense has looked. But I think one thing we're seeing early on this season is that the continued crackdown on any questionable contact of the quarterbacks, or even on anyone at all, is starting to have an effect on increased scoring. We're seeing lots of drives sustained by roughing penalties that you probably don't see getting called as often as in the past. At some point the players are going to learn exactly where the line in the sand is, but after the Simone Lawrence debacle on the opening drive of the season, refs are erring on the side of throwing the flag if there's any doubt. We've already seen at least a couple roughing the kicker calls made, as the rules have been tweaked to further protect them as well, and BC parlayed one of those into a touchdown on Saturday. It's early yet, but I think we're perhaps seeing this new reality getting factored into these totals, and we're seeing higher numbers across the board than we were last season. As futile as this Argos offense has been up to this point, the very real threat of this secondary getting steamrolled for 40 points, combined with the potential for these drive-sustaining penalties to factor into the equation on either side, is enough of a concern to think carefully before making a play on the under, which may have been an easy call under similar circumstances in the past. All eyes will once again be turned to Regina for the week's finale, where the suddenly confident riders have opened as 3.5-point favourites against their western rivals from Calgary. The total in this one sits at 51, which makes it by far the lowest number on the board. I think we've generally got the gist of how these two teams performed last week, as I've touched on them throughout the program looking at the other games. But the biggest question on anybody's mind right now is the status of Stamps quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell, who left late last week with an issue in the pectoral region of his throwing arm. It's undeniable that Mitchell was having another pretty pedestrian night, and the comeback may very well not have happened if Nick Arbuckle hadn't come into the game. But I think we'd still be fooling ourselves if we think Arbuckle can just slide in and replace Bo Levi seamlessly if it comes down to that. That all said, you can't help but wonder how similar this might be to a New England Patriots situation in the NFL, where the system built around the star quarterback is strong enough that there's still a reasonably high expectation of success, even with a less accomplished QB at the helm. I mentioned earlier that this Calgary coaching staff are the kings of manufacturing points in all situations, even when their offense isn't clicking and we've watched this for years. Last week was no different as they found a way to score 36 points, despite an offense that got killed again on first down, and even after the Arbuckle heroics were added in, finished with less than 50% of snaps grading successful. So if you take into account that a fairly poor performance from Mitchell, at least by his standards, still had them sitting at 23 points and in position to steal a win, 
It's not a huge leap in logic to suppose that a good showing from Arbuckle should at a minimum have them in a similar spot. One thing this offense really needs to get sorted out though is their running game. Don Jackson has done absolutely nothing in two games, and while they got away with this to an extent against two teams that didn't bring a ton of pressure on passing downs, I don't think they want to put themselves in a situation where Saskatchewan's defensive line can just pin their ears back. The Riders haven't been an easy defense to run against thus far, and the Stamps may be wise to take a page out of BC's playbook and see if they can get Jackson or Terry Williams more involved in the passing game out of the backfield. Jackson has seen some screen plays in the first two games, but not many short passing plays that are direct substitutes for a run call. Mitchell is the big injury to keep an eye on, but while there still remains a chance he plays pending an announcement on his MRI results, we know for sure the Stamps will be without a few other key pieces as the injury bug has bitten them in the early going. They've brought in some fresh bodies this week to try and deal with it, but their depth is going to be tested. A lot of these injuries have been appearing on the defensive side of the ball. We'll see to what end they're able to continue to plug and play, but one thing that might be encouraging in a sense is that despite BC piling up yards and eventually 32 points last week, three of those Lions touchdown drives were at some point sustained by penalties that didn't need to happen, and one of those even flipped what would have been a pick six on the opening drive of the game. Until this defense reaches a point where the scheming can't overcome the loss of bodies, I'll continue to give them the benefit of the doubt, and I think this is probably going to be the toughest test faced by Fajardo so far. I think Marcus Thigpen is going to be Fajardo's friend in this game, and I say this because one area where Calgary badly struggled was in dealing with John White catching dump-offs and bubble screens out of the backfield. If I'm the Riders, I'm trying the same thing with Thigpen until the defense proves they can stop it. Thought we might see a little more of him against the Argos than we did, but Craig Dickinson decided to give William Powell almost all of the touches. Obviously it's possible he'll use Powell in the role I described above, but I think Thigpen's ability to elude tacklers in the opening field makes him the more likely primary option if the Riders decide to go that route. Receiver Manny Arsenault is expected to make his season debut, and he'll add another weapon to this receiving core. Truth be told, I'm not exactly sure who he's going to replace, and coming off major knee surgery, I'd imagine he gets eased into a fairly deep rotation. Kyron Moore and Katie Cannon are a couple of younger guys that the Riders are high on, and both are coming off very good games, and Shaq Evans is a mainstay, so opportunities are going to be at a premium. Naaman Roosevelt is a guy who I see as potentially vulnerable, as he seems to have been passed on the depth chart over the last year or so and hasn't been able to get back to the level that saw him put together consecutive thousand-yard seasons back in 2016 and 17. On the other side of the ball, Solomon Elamimium is close to returning as well. No official word yet, but he'd add one more imposing presence to a defense that has no shortage of them. Strong play out of linebackers Cam Judge and Derek Moncrief has made it easy to forget that the Riders signed Elamimium right as training camp began, but I'm sure Coach Dickinson is nonetheless excited to throw him into the mix once he gets the all-clear from the coaching staff. Seeing Calgary as more than a field goal underdog, even heading into hostile Mosaic Stadium, is definitely something that instinctively elicits a double-take, but it's probably fair with the uncertainty surrounding the quarterback position and the amount of injuries elsewhere. The Stampeders seem to be proceeding as though Nick Arbuckle will be getting the start, so any bets placed before an official announcement should probably operate under that assumption. I think this line was likely set to reflect an Arbuckle start, as typically if a quarterback injury situation really is completely up in the air, books will hold off a little while on releasing a line. The question is, how does the market react to Arbuckle officially being named starter, assuming it happens at some point prior to game day? I'm sure some casual money would start to flow in on the riders at that point, 
I have to think more seasoned betters have a long enough memory to recall the Stampeders finding a way to succeed regardless of circumstance for years on end under the Huffnagel-Dickinson regime, and in the limited sample we saw from Arbuckle, there's plenty of reason for optimism. Once upon a time, an untested backup named Dave Dickinson was called upon to fill Jeff Garcia's shoes, and that turned out reasonably well for everyone involved. Now, I'm not saying Arbuckle is another Dickinson, but if he could turn in, uh, well, let's say a Cody Fajardo-level performance in relief, Calgary would be in very good shape moving forward. So would we look at the Stampeders getting more than a field goal as a wise investment this week? Uh, I'm more curious just to see what the market does with this line, if anything, but I'll say this. I'm not betting against this coaching staff at the current price. The 51 total is something that's probably jumping off the page for overbetters who are suddenly seeing most totals set in the mid to high 50s, and I'd imagine this number could creep upwards slightly as kickoff nears. We have every reason to believe Dave Dickinson is going for two after most touchdowns he scores, and we're seeing brother Craig possibly moving in that direction on the riders' sideline as well, as he went for it after one of his three scores on Monday. The effect of that is... A hypothetical game with only five touchdowns still has a reasonable chance of cashing the over if the end result is 36 or 37 total points off the majors. Kicking singles after every score, of course, would leave you at 35, if they're all successful, in which case you would need an extra score from the kickers to get past 51. Of course, you need to hit the two-point converts when you attempt them for this math to work in your favor, but Calgary is 4 for 4 on the season and has never struggled to convert these, while Saskatchewan is more of an unknown, going 1 for 2 so far. At 51 on the button, I'm definitely leaning towards the over side of this. If you get any higher than that, the probability of getting the over with only 5 majors scored starts to diminish quickly. Even for a total, a 1-point move isn't something you should disregard and this is one of those cases where the value that exists on the overside of this number right now is probably gone at 52 and beyond. If Bo Levi is declared out at some point, maybe we see a slight downward adjustment, but as I alluded to earlier, I think there's already a strong enough feeling that he won't be playing that this has largely been taken into account. We've managed to cash our first three best bets of the season here, and if I've only got one chance to keep the ball rolling, I'm turning to the Ottawa-Winnipeg game this week. The Bombers sat at plus 4.5 initially, and that's almost certainly the best number that was ever going to be available on that side, but I'd be comfortable backing them up to plus 3, which is hopefully still available at whichever time you listen to this. Okay, another one in the books for us here. Hard to believe we're already just a day away from week 4 kicking off, but it's been a great ride so far. A show note for next week, I will be on vacation in the fine city of Las Vegas, which is obviously highly conducive to betting on football, but less so for putting a show together. So I'll be taking a break next week, but if you've been following along on Twitter, I'll still be sending out some thoughts on the week's action, and just maybe a bet or two that I've zeroed in on when I'm not passed out beside a swimming pool. Thanks to everyone for listening. Once again, you can visit firstlinepicks.com or follow me on Twitter at kdrive88 to get in touch, or stay in touch if you've already done so. Whichever side you're on this week, best of luck, and we'll hopefully see you again in two weeks on Third Down Gamble.